This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today we bring you another story from our number 18 series, which focuses on a Louisiana State University football tradition of passing down the number 18 jersey. But this isn't given to the best player, the MVP, the man whose name is in the papers all the time. No, this is given to the man who exhibits the best character, who goes the extra mile both on and off the field, and who can be counted on by his teammates. Today we hear from Matt Mock, the first player to pass down his jersey, and all because of a joke. But more on that later. Here's Matt to tell his story. Growing up in a small town in Indiana, there wasn't much else to do, so sports was kind of kind of my life. Growing up in a small town, you never think that, you know, it's going to amount to anything, but, you know, you have these dreams of playing in the NFL. You know, I always wanted to be the next Joe Montana. Touchdown! 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 And so uh, that that's kind of where it started for me. Our coach was kind of an old-school guy, and so... Being the quarterback was not the, the premier position. Everybody wanted to be the running back. So I was actually a, a running back until my freshman year. We had a, a guy who was a year older than me uh, and was, was a very good running back as well. The freshman coach was like, man, you know, it's just stupid to have our two best athletes both play in the same position. He goes, you can throw the ball really well. Why don't you play uh, quarterback? And so it was kind of a tough deal for me because my, my best friend, um, who's still my best friend today, was actually our quarterback. I mean, he knew I could throw it better than him just because that's how, you know, we just, we grew up together uh, in the backyard. But I, as he says, he goes, you know, it worked out pretty well uh, <laughs> for me. And then that, that was kind of my, my journey. I, I ended up playing quarterback in a, a running scheme. Didn't get a whole lot of offers. I wasn't like some five-star guy just because the, the most times I'd ever thrown in a game was 12. I had offers to the local schools and then uh, Nick Saban actually uh, was kind of the first um, you know, big school to offer me a scholarship and everybody kind of fell in line after that. So originally I signed with Michigan State to play football and baseball. I ended up getting drafted by the Chicago Cubs out of high school. I really wanted to play football, but ended up we won the state championship in baseball. I was named Mr. Baseball. You know, all this stuff was kind of happening at one time. And the opportunity was there, and I just kind of, I said, you know, let's give it a try. Nick Saban recruited me at Michigan State. I called him to tell him what I was, I was going to play baseball. He was super, I mean, encouraging. He said, hey, I totally get it. He goes, that's pretty awesome that you have that opportunity. Um, you know, if, just know your scholarship is always uh, good here. For me, it wasn't that I didn't like baseball. What I got worried about was that I was going to be 27, 28, and, and that I didn't make it, um, and that I didn't have a backup plan, um, and I didn't have an education. Um, and unfortunately, in minor league baseball, a lot of times there's, there's some guys that, that really don't want anything else in life. 
It's just all they want. And I wanted that goal, but honestly, it was kind of funny when I was in minor league baseball. All the guys that played college baseball found out, you know, my, my past and and every one of them that, that went to college was like, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> They're like, this, you get the chance to play big time division one college football. Dude, how did you pass that up? You know, you're playing in Davenport, Iowa in front of, you know, 40 people um, and it's hot and, you know, you, you're having a bad month. It's just, you know, it's just in your thinking to yourself, what am I doing? Uh, I have a chance to one, get an education and two, play, you know, big-time Division One football. Uh, but the, what it helped me was by the time I got to LSU, I was, I was super focused. You know, I knew, hey, I wanted to be a doctor and, uh, and I wanted to play football. Those are my two biggest focuses. And so uh, my third year in minor league baseball, I played with the Lansing Lugnuts uh, in Lansing, Michigan. <laughs> so uh, kind of funny that uh, I ended up back in Lansing, um, but doing minor league baseball and not football. And so I reached out to Coach Saban and said, hey, listen, I, you know, I'm not sure I'm loving minor league baseball. There's a chance I, I might come back to football. And, and he said, hey, like I told you before, you know, you always have a scholarship. He, he, was, he was awesome. I mean, he, he really was. That, was. that was a huge relief, and it kind of made me feel good uh, about everything. I played that whole year out. Um, I went back through spring training, and I got put back in Lansing. Um, and I played about a month. Um, and at that point, Coach Saban had left Michigan State and went to LSU. I finally made up my mind. Basically, I had the decision of Colorado, Michigan State, uh, Virginia, or LSU. Um, and IU. Uh, Nick Saban was still the, the best at making me feel like, hey, we, we'd really love to have you here. I told baseball I was done. LSU was the most intriguing, um, just SEC school, uh, felt like there was a lot of potential. And that was it. I it was a little scary getting off the plane. It was 100 degrees and like 90% humidity. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but it was just, it just seemed like a place that was, was on the rise and, and good things were going to come. Uh, you know, it was a little weird because I was the same age as a lot of the seniors uh, that were on the team. So I'm coming in, with, I'm 21 at the time. It was a little awkward um, just because the people I had more in common with were the seniors rather than my, my classmates um, at that time. And it was good. It was just, you know, I'd thrown a baseball for, for three and a half years. Uh, I picked up a football in the off season, um, but really hadn't done much. And like I said before, I, I came from a school that the most times I, in high school that I'd ever thrown in a game was 12. So I got there and I think the, the coaching staff honestly just liked me because of my athleticism, not necessarily me as a quarterback. Um, so, and I was a, I was a little rusty, you know, I, I just, I, I hadn't uh, won. I didn't go to all these QB camps and things like that. So when I got there, it was kind of funny, a lot of people don't kind of know this story, but um, my first week in camp, um, I was actually, I was doing okay. You know, I, I, the good part, I was uh, fairly intelligent, so I was able to pick up the offense quick and stuff like that. Coach Saban uh, called me in his office and he said, hey, listen, you know, you're doing fine at quarterback, but, um, you know, if you would come over to play safety, he goes, I, I think you, you'd have a chance to start this year. But my dream has always been, you know, quarterback. And so I, I said, hey, listen, just give me one more week. 
I said, if you don't like what you see, I, I will move over and, and I'll, I'll play safety. That day or the next day, um, we had three quarterbacks, Josh Booty, Rohan Davey, Craig Knoll. All three played in the NFL, um, and then I was basically the fourth string, uh, and that's why they could move me over. Craig Knoll is, um, is holding on an extra point, um, and the kicker kicks his thumb and breaks it. And then Rohan Davey ends up pulling a hamstring. So I end up becoming the backup quarterback that, that week um, just, from, just from injury. And honestly, I think if those two guys don't get injured, I, I don't, I'm not even a quarterback um, at LSU. Kind of, kind of crazy how, how things worked out. And I still don't think, I mean, the coaching staff was, they liked me just because I worked hard and did that type of stuff, but I don't think any of them um, looked at me as, you know, uh, a quarterback that, that they were, you know, really excited about. Um, and so, uh, and because I, I really hadn't, I mean, I wasn't displaying great ability throwing the ball. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, oh man, you watch a practice, man, that looks awesome, you know, unbelievable. The next year, Josh Booty um, decides to leave for the NFL, and Rohan Davey is the starter, um, and it's me and um, uh, Marcus Randall that are uh, battling for the backup spot. Nick Saban kind of wanted Marcus Randall to kind of be the, the backup guy. He just saw more potential with him. Ended up, you know, he and I were splitting reps. He ends up tearing his ACL um, in the spring, uh, spring game or uh, during that spring. So it was basically Rohan and I was the backup the whole year. Um, and I was getting better, I really was. I was playing well and all that stuff in practice. Um, I only, I got into one game in 2001 um, during the regular season. Uh, Rohan went down and I, I went in the second half of Florida. And I always like to tell this story because the most passes I'd ever thrown was 12 um, in a game. Uh, I played one half in Florida and threw 22 passes. Uh, so I, uh, I said it was kind of, uh, kind of interesting, just, you know, just a whole role reversal of what I was, I was used to. Uh, but still, no one really kind of thought anything um, special or anything like that. Uh, and then we ended up having some success that year and lucked into the SEC championship game in 2001. And we're playing Tennessee, which at the time was the number two ranked team in the country. Welcome back to Atlanta, the SEC championship game. Tennessee has won seven in a row. LSU has won its last four. They were you know, two, three touchdown favorites against us in the SEC championship game. Um, they were loaded. I mean, they had uh, f their four starting defensive linemen all uh, played in the NFL. Rohan had had a great year. I think he might have led the SEC in passing yardage and touchdowns. I mean, he was just, he was awesome that year. And I, I was totally a different Rohan. I was truly a pocket passer. At that time, I was still more of a running um, option type quarterback. So we get into the SEC championship game. Uh, first quarter, we're doing okay. Um, Rohan uh, rolls out, going to the sideline, um, and gets hit late in his side, and uh, either fractured or bruised his ribs, I forget who it was. Rohan Davey has been injured twice in this game. Could have been a penalty. I mean, it was a late hit, an unnecessary hit, and Matt Mock. 22-year-old freshman from Jasper, Indiana. So I get put in, you know, scared the crap out of me you know I'm like holy crap I can't believe I'm playing in the SEC championship game so that week um, 
Jimbo Fisher was uh, was really worried about um, their defensive line and just how good they were and that we weren't going to be able to protect against him. So he put in a series of quarterback runs, not with me in mind or anything, but just for Rohan in case we couldn't do anything. And literally, we put this in on Wednesday. Uh, it was the day that we put this in. And these quarterback runs, uh, Tennessee just had no idea. It was just, they didn't plan for it, anything. Um, and we end up driving the ball down the field and scoring. You know, our team just kind of came to life a little bit. Rohan goes back into the game that he can't play the second half. So the second half is, is just me. The thing that Tennessee has to remember about Matt Mock now is that he is very athletic. Uh, and LeBrandon Tofield are starting uh, running back got hurt as well. So we have our backup quarterback and our backup running back playing the number two team in the country. And we end up knocking them off. That game kind of just changed things for LSU. Uh, we became relevant. You know, one of those kind of surreal moments, um, just because you didn't even expect to play. Uh, and I ended up getting named the uh, SEC uh, Championship Game MVP. Um, so it was, it was kind of a kind of a cool deal. And probably to this day, you know, even over the national championship, you know, single uh, greatest game for me. You just feeling like you overcame so much stuff to help the team out. The next year, it was kind of the same. You know, I think the coaches loved loved my maturity. They loved, you know, how I commanded the huddle, that type of stuff. But I don't think they were necessarily enamored with me as a player. And I and I think for a reason. I, you know, I, I I still wasn't throwing the ball great. I was much better when I was on the run, um, making plays like that. So we go into the 2002 season, um, and. Uh, you know, I, I kind of worked my butt off. I was trying as hard as I can to, to get better as a passer and to do all these things. Um, and I ended up winning the starting job in 2002. Um, we lost our first game, uh, which was my first start ever, uh, to Virginia Tech. Um, just, it was a day game. We just, we just didn't come out and play, uh, play great. We went on to win the next five straight games and uh, kind of battled ourselves to rank like 10, 12, something like that in the country. We were playing at Florida, um, and we were up three, four touchdowns. It was the first time we'd beaten Florida uh, at Florida for I think like, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And I had a pretty good game, uh, that game, and they call a quarterback draw. Fourth quarter, uh, we're up four scores, and I do the play, and a guy ends up kind of falling on the back of my heel this is not good news for LSU Tiger fans as Moss comes limping. And listen to the ovation from the LSU faithful as Mock comes off the field. He played a great game. And basically I get what's called a Liz Frank injury. It means the metatarsals in your foot, um, the two bones that kind of, the major bones in your foot separate and the ligaments tear between them pretty much you're, you you can't walk. End up having to have season ending surgery and we're five and one at the time. I think we end up going three and four after that. So we end up eight and five for the year, lose in the Cotton Bowl um, to Texas, just get killed. Uh, and I was pretty, you know, distraught um, just because I felt like I'd, you know, worked my butt off and um, things were going the right direction. Uh, but it ended up being um, this blessing in disguise so have surgery and I've got a pin in my foot 
and all of spring practice, I just sat on a bucket and I just threw pass after pass after pass with our equipment guys. I would probably throw three, 400 passes every practice and just sitting there working on mechanics and quick release and how we're doing it, just sitting on a bucket because I couldn't do anything else. By the end of spring, I was able to, to start playing again. I went from being an option quarterback to a pocket passer. Sitting on that bucket uh, helped with that transition. I ended up becoming basically the quarterback that I always wanted to become only because of the injury. Came back in 2003 um, and I won the starting job and our, our playbook was just totally different because I was able to do the things that I never was able to do before that. Turn the tide for LSU. We came into 2003, I went three and four at the end of 2002. You know, people kind of thought, hey, we have some talent, but they didn't know how good we were gonna be. Um, so we were, I think we started out preseason ranked like 20th or something like that. It's football Southern style, and it's Georgia against LSU. It was a huge game. It was really our opportunity um, to kind of, you know, show that, hey, LSU's relevant. And I, so this is, my favorite part of that game is, uh, is LSU football. People in, in Louisiana, are, you have no idea what SEC football means to, to fans in that region. It is, I mean, it is beyond passion. It is just, they, they truly live it. Their week is dictated on whether we win or lose. Um, and it was on CBS, it was just this huge hyped game. The best part about it was we always did this tiger walk where you would, they'd, drop, they'd take the buses and, and we'd uh, stop on top of the hill and then you would walk down to the stadium. And it, it, there was always lined and they have kind of gates up and it's lined with people. Um, and, and before, you know, in every game before it was always cool, but you know, there was maybe, you know, five, six, seven thousand people, um, enough to line the whole fence the whole way down and people would cheer in and, and, and it, you know, it's a great experience and all that. Well, the buses pull up for this game and, uh, and we get off the bus and you could not see concrete. Um, it was, there was probably, I think they estimated that there was a uh, hundred thousand people that were outside the stadium. And it was, I mean, literally, uh, walking down was probably, uh, likened it to, uh, you felt like you were kind of like a, a gladiator, um, you know, b before coming out of the, the tunnel at the Coliseum. It was, it was just a, a very, uh, just a surreal moment. And then that year, uh, we ended up uh, losing one game uh, and then beating Oklahoma. Uh, for the national championship. And it was the first one since 1958 for LSU. The BCS national championship game between Oklahoma and LSU. LSU wins the BCS national championship. This was probably my one regret. At the time, I, 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 I decided that I was going to leave um, just because won the national championship, I'd already graduated. I'd kind of accomplished everything that I 
had ever wanted to. Um, and it looked like I was going to get drafted, so I was going to get a chance to play two professional sports. And so that's that was the decision. Um, looking back on it and just just knowing how special it is to play college football at that level. I wish I would have gone back. I just, I love LSU. I loved every minute I was there. Uh, the possibility of, of looking back on getting the chance to play uh, 12, 13 more games in an LSU uniform, I, I should have taken that and I should have done that. So I was drafted by the Broncos uh, in the seventh round and then ended up playing one year here and two years with the Tennessee Titans. Then I had back surgery in 2006 which kind of ended my, my career and started uh, dental school. So it was actually, so um, when I was playing here, um, this office was the team dentist, and so I got to know um, one of the doctors that was here really well. You know, I, I knew I liked Denver. I had only applied to LSU for dental school. And then as soon as I hurt my back, I applied to, um, to Colorado and to University of Washington. Um, I was able to get into both places um, and decided on um, Colorado just because I had a, a house here and everything. And uh, I joined the practice and I've been here ever since. It's funny that, you know, you talk about this 18 legacy. I was a little older when I got there. And so I, I kind of related better to the seniors and then, um, honestly, to the auxiliary staff. So Greg Stringfellow, who's the head equipment manager now, still one of my best friends to this day, Michael Bonnet, who's the sports information director, one of my dear, dear friends, and then Jack Murchie. And, and Brent Bankston is the other guy. He's the orthopedic surgeon. He's kind of who helped shape my life from a, a work standpoint now. Yeah, I give Jack a hard time about this because Jack's probably the guy that, that loves the 18 more than anybody um, just because he's just such a history guy and, and loves the idea of it. But when I first got the number 18, because uh, Jack's a big numbers guy, um, he, he said, he goes, he goes, you know, Matt, he goes, I just don't know. He goes, I think it's a little boxy. I think it's a little boxy. I don't know if I like it. <laughs> so, uh, so this to this day, I always, I always tell Jack. I said it's just a little boxy. I don't know. I don't know. So, it ended up how it how it came about is, I was sitting in uh, Greg Stringfellow's office, and Michael Bonnet was in there, and Jack was in there, and just jokingly, um, the freshmen were coming in. And, uh, and I said, I said, guys, I said, we just can't give 18 to anybody. I said, you know, we need to, it's gotta be, you know, it's gotta be somebody that we like. And, and it was, they both, everybody that was in there was like, you know what, you're right, you're right. We gotta we got get somebody good, we gotta get somebody good. Well, they ended up just giving it to Jacob Hester without, there was no anything, but ended up giving it to the, the perfect guy. Jacob was kind of identical to me and, and as far as work ethic, having, you know, a, a bigger perspective than just sports. You know, wanted to be successful in life, not just football. And, and tomorrow, honestly, that's the part I'm, I'm most I mean, I'm proud about is that, that it truly, how they've been able to pick the right guys, you know, year after year. And it's always, it's always, they've done a great job. So this, this really cool um, legacy was built, um, not because of me or anything like that, but I think it just, it, it just kind of defined um, what Nick Saban was able to do at LSU, is that we weren't just recruiting good football players, we were trying to recruit good people um, that could play football. And I think the 18 legacy uh, is what that represents.
is that, hey, it's important to be really good at football, but it's more important to be a good person and to be, be successful in life. You need to be a you need to be a contributing factor to the team, but it's not about it's not about how how good you are. It's the fact that you know, the hope is when you turn on film that that you don't have to worry about 18 given effort. That's just always going to happen, and and that's that to me that that's that's what's what's really cool. About it. And you've been listening to Matt Mock, and again the number 18 tradition, and we've done a running series on this. Well, it was built. Primarily, not on his back, but on the kind of character-driven person that he was. Wanted to create a place, a space, and honor a tradition uh, for having those kind of athletes and and citizen athletes almost on the team. And my goodness, Nick Saban's legacy, man, that's the best one. Not the championship that he will have at his time at LSU, but my goodness, not just recruiting good football players was not Coach Saban's standard. He recruited good people who happened to be good football players. And that's Matt Mock's words about Coach Saban. And that legacy has lasted on through just about everything Saban has touched. Matt Mock's story, the first LSU number 18 story here on Our American Story. And we continue here with our American stories. And our next story comes to us from a man whose YouTube videos are followed by hundreds of thousands of viewers of all ages. He's known simply as the history guy. And we spend a lot of time telling stories about the past. And that's every kind of story about the past. Because if you don't know who you are, well, you can't know who you're going to be. And so much of the story of who we are is the story of the past. And so that's why we spend a lot of time on history. So here's the history guy with the story he calls Centerline, the surprising history of lane markings. When Americans first started driving automobiles, we really hadn't set up rules or laws to operate the thing safely. In fact, for most of many decades, there wasn't even a line down the center of the road to delineate the lanes. In the fall of 1917, Dr. June McCarroll was driving her Ford Model T down the road near Indio, California when she was run off the road by a truck. She later said of the event, My Model T Ford and I found ourselves face to face with a truck on a paved highway. It didn't take me long to choose between the Sandy Berth to the right and the 10-ton truck to the left. And that's when I had my idea, pinning a white line down the center of the highways of the country as a safety measure. The California Department of Transportation credits Dr. McCarroll with the idea of painting a center line, but she wasn't actually the first to have that idea. You know, today that line down the middle of the hundreds of thousands of miles of roads around the world is, is so common. It makes such common sense, it's hard to imagine roads without them. But the history of delineating lanes on roads is actually surprising. And it deserves to be remembered. There are some early examples of lane marking. Well, jubilee years, years of forgiveness, are mentioned in the Bible, chapter of Leviticus. The tradition in the Western Catholic Church was started by Pope Boniface VIII in 1300 AD. So many people, as many as 200,000, came to Rome for the event that Boniface had a continuous line painted down the middle of each road in Rome to help manage the crowds. The line did not, however, denote the direction of traffic, but the type. 
horses and carts would be on one side, foot traffic on the other. In 1600 AD, a road near Mexico City used lighter colored stones to denote a center line. Markings of a center line were used sporadically on bridges in the US and elsewhere in the 19th century. New York City was using pavement lines to mark crosswalks as early as 1911. Conventions for the direction of travel developed with time and were largely set by the 19th century, although the world still not come to an agreement whether traffic should move to the left or to the right. Early traffic tended to have the traveler on the left, a tradition possibly derived so that your sword hand would face the road in case the person on the other side was an enemy. America took the convention of traffic moving on the right, a tradition which developed in the 18th century to make it easier to pass large agricultural wagons where the driver would control the horse team from the left rear horse, leaving his right hand free to control the whip. It was easier for the driver to see that he was clearing traffic that was passing to his left. Keep to the right laws were passed in both France and the United States in 1792. England, however, continued the tradition of traffic moving on the left, which was codified in the Highway Act of 1835 and is still followed in most of the former British Empire. But roads, for the most part, still did not have marked lanes, but the advent of the automobile and greater speeds made the need for such markings more apparent. Somewhat surprisingly, the move to mark those lanes appeared to originate in the United States. Cars became a sensation in the States. Between 1907 and 1917, they essentially replaced horses and carriages as the primary mode of transportation, a transition that was so quick that it outpaced society's ability to adjust. In 1910, there were only five cars per 1,000 people in the United States. But by 1920, that number had increased 17-fold to 86 per 1,000. When the Model T was introduced in 1908, it sold for $825. By 1912, the Model T runabout sold for $525, less than the average annual income in America, and the price continued to drop to a mere $290 in 1927. Cars became ubiquitous very soon after they were introduced. They became faster and faster, and paved roadways proliferated in an attempt to keep up. By 1918, there were over 10,000 motor vehicle deaths in the U.S. a year. As with many innovations, safety precautions and law systems were slow to keep up with the pace of technological change. It took a single decade for cars to become the primary mode of transportation in the United States, and the speeds men could now go with ease produced problems that had never been considered properly. In 1901, Connecticut became the first state in the country to institute a speed limit on motor vehicles, 12 miles an hour in town, 15 miles an hour on rural roads. Cars could go much faster than that. In 1911, a world record had been set by Bob Berman at Daytona Beach by going 141 miles an hour. While most cars couldn't go that fast, they had turned trips that took days into a matter of mere hours. One of the greatest challenges was lanes. With wagons and carriages, muddy roads developed ruts that were easy to follow. And while accidents were not trivial, they moved slowly enough that it was comparatively simple to avoid someone else on the road. While there is some disagreement, the first appearance of lane markings in the U.S. has been traced to Michigan, according to the Michigan Department of Transportation. The first line was painted in 1911 on River Road in Wayne County, Michigan, put there at the instigation of Edward N. Hines. Edward was a major innovator in road safety, spearheading the Good Roads Organization to improve public roads in Michigan in the 1890s. Hines also built the first stretch of concrete road in the world in 1909 and served on the Wayne County Board of Roads when it was created in 1906, alongside Henry Ford himself. 
Hines was said to have the original idea of pinning a line down the middle of the road when he saw a milk truck go by that was leaking milk and thus leaving a white line behind him as it passed. And while the idea has become since a bedrock of traffic control, it took some time for it to catch on nationally. In 1917, in addition to Dr. McCarroll, several other people had the idea to paint lines, apparently independently of one another, in three different states. In Michigan, Kenneth Ingalls Sawyer, as engineer superintendent of Marquette County, painted a white center line along a dead man's curve. In Oregon, Deputy Sheriff Peter Rexford came up with the idea while on a bus driving on a dark rainy night. The county refused to fund the project, so Chief Deputy Martin Pratt paid for the paint that was later painted on the Columbia River Highway between Crown Point and Multnomah Falls in April 1917. It was later that fall that Dr. McCarroll was run off the road near Indio, California. Dr. McCarroll holds unique place in the story, however, because her work went beyond just coming up with the idea. When the local Chamber of Commerce was uninterested in her plan, McCarroll painted the line herself. She instigated a letter-writing campaign that would help convince the state of California to adopt the measure universally in November 1924, and the State Highway Commission painted the lines. But at the time, there were few, if any, standards or guiding principles for markings, and where those standards or guiding principles did exist, they were on a local level, and there was no coordination between local agencies. In 1930, the National Conference on Street and Highway Safety published a manual on street traffic signs, signals, and markings. The manual recommended pavement lane markings in a number of cases, for example on curves of less than 600 foot radius, and also on hill crests where the view ahead is insufficient to permit overtaking the passing in safety. Center lines were also recommended on streets with high traffic both directions, and streets wide enough to have more than one lane either direction. Lines were recommended to be at least 4 inches wide, and be white or yellow on bituminous pavement, and black or white on concrete. The use of black lane markings became less popular during the Second World War, when black markings could not be seen while driving under blackout conditions. The use of broken lines to note places where lane changing is permitted was not defined until a new manual was produced in 1948. The original purpose of the dashed lines was to save costs by reducing the amount of paint needed to mark lanes. The length of the lines and gaps was not defined, but the manual said it should be well proportioned. The manual further noted that on rural highways, a commonly used standard of 15-foot segments with 25 gaps was normal. No national standard was adopted until 1978. Research shows that people tend to underestimate the length of the broken lines, with people surveyed most commonly assuming that the lines are two feet long with equal gaps in between. In fact, since 1978, the broken lines in the U.S. are standardized to be 10 feet long with a 30-foot gap in between. Thus, every time your car passes a new dashed line, it has traveled 40 feet, far further than most people assume. For years, states had local rules for what colors of paint to use on the roads for different purposes, and especially heated was the debate between whether white or yellow paint should be used to divide highways. By November 1954, 43 years after the first center line was painted, 47 of the then 48 states had decided to use white as the dividing line, and Oregon, the last state, capitulated later that year. In 1958, the interstate U.S. Bureau of Public Roads adopted white lines to divide lanes. But in 1971, the Federal Highway Administration required now that all center lines on two-way roads be painted yellow, while white center lines were used to demarcate lanes of traffic going in the same direction, the now familiar system that we use today. The history of painting centerline road markers tells us that a few people with a good idea willing to make a small change could make, well, a large difference.
Today both Edward Hines and Kenneth Ingalls Sawyer are in the Michigan Transportation Hall of Honor. And the section of road on which Dr. McCarroll first painted her white line is now named in her honor. The Dr. June McCarroll Memorial Freeway. That was the history guy you've been listening to. And if you want more stories of forgotten history, subscribe to his YouTube channel, The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered. And by the way, I love a little quote he had, and I'm going to read you as we, as we leave this hour. I have always loved history, a passion I got from my mother, who emphasized education. And my father liked John Wayne movies. While I earned a degree in history, life took me elsewhere. And after careers in education and the corporate world, I decided to follow my passion and tell the stories of forgotten history I've always loved to tell. I believe that history does not have to be boring. History might be tragic. It might be comic. But it's the story of who we are, and we should not be afraid to enjoy that story and be moved by that story. The surprising story of lane markings here on Our American Stories. American stories, and we bring you stories of all sorts on this program. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Again, sign up for our free newsletter, our five best stories each week, straight into your inbox. And by the way, send the link to friends. And today, we bring you a story about a catastrophe of epic proportions that took place in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's Jesse. You can inflate a balloon in three seconds, four seconds, I understand. How long is it going to take these kids with no experience? We're figuring that they'll do about two to three balloons a minute. I've been doing this since I was 15 years old, so it's unfair to compare. But uh, two to three balloons a minute, each kid is going to do uh, correctly about 700 balloons or so uh, for the day. And, and we'll do it in about four to six hours, all the balloons. In September of 1986... United Way of Cleveland, Ohio, set a world record by releasing almost one and a half million balloons up into the sky. Don't remember, folks, don't park on the square because this ain't the place for your car this weekend. (laughs) Back to you. Sounds like fun, David. The event was intended to be a harmless fundraising publicity stunt, but the balloons drifted back over the city, Lake Erie, and land in the surrounding area, causing problems for traffic and the nearby airport. I understand we might have a northerly wind, too, so they'll all wind up over Canada. (laughs) The stunt was coordinated by Balloon Art, a Los Angeles-based company that spent six months preparing for this. A rectangular structure the size of a city block measuring 250 feet by 150 feet and rising three stories high, covered with a one-piece net of woven mesh material, was set up to hold the balloons. Inside the structure, 2,500 students and other volunteers spent many hours filling balloons with helium. Ladies and gentlemen, live from downtown Cleveland, it's Big Chuck and Little John in front of the biggest happening around. They originally planned to release 2 million balloons, but stopped at over 1.4 million. What is your name? Tanya Pierre. Okay, Tanya, show everybody what you have on your hands there. What are those? Let's say bandages. 
Okay, and what are they for? They're for getting away from sores, sores from your hands. Okay, did you get any blisters? Yeah, three. Are you having a good time? Yeah. Are you tired? Yeah. Okay. The children would sell sponsorships to benefit United Way at the price of $1 for every two balloons that were purchased. Okay, Chuck, as you can see, they're going strong, they're blowing them up. I still think they have the record. Back to you, Chuck. It's Cleveland, it's your time. It's time to say yes, it's time to say it is a happening city. We are on the move. It's no longer the butt of jokes or anything. I've been in this city now for six months, and I absolutely love it. You know, my wife and I have even talked about moving here, and our friends in L.A. think we're nuts. On Saturday, September 27th, 1986, with a rainstorm approaching, organizers decided on an early release of the balloons at about 1.50 p.m. Eastern. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Here Make they go. Lift off. Amazing. And the far end is up, and there they go, John. Close to 1.5 million balloons rose up from Cleveland's public square surrounding Terminal Tower. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no mistake on the lake anymore. Cleveland has now broken the Guinness Book of World Records and released over 1,500,000 balloons. Think of, think, think of that, Chuck. The Guinness Book of World Records, the Cleveland home of the home of the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. All of this in Cleveland, Ohio. The All-American City. Now typically, a helium-filled latex balloon that's released outdoors will stay up in the air long enough to be deflated before it descends to Earth. However, the balloon fest balloons were hit with a front of cool air and rain, which caused them to drop towards the ground, still inflated, clogging the land and waterways of northeast Ohio. Two fishermen, who had gone out on September 26th, were reported missing by their families the day of the event. It's been an exhausting search for these Coast Guardsmen. They've been out on the water most of the day looking for two 40-year-old Cleveland men, Skip Sullivan and Raymond Broderick. They went out fishing about an hour before last night's heavy storm blew through. This is their boat, a pair of life jackets still in it, along with a hat and a fishing pole. The boat's motor is gone, its sides are battered apparently from pounding all night against this section of the break wall off Edgewater Park. That's where the Coast Guard found the boat about 8.30 this morning. When the crew tried to spot the fishermen floating in the lake, the balloons in the water made it impossible to spot anyone in the lake. Ironically, that big balloon launch in Cleveland today is one of the things that's making this search so tough for the Coast Guard. Can you imagine trying to find somebody floating out here or even spotting a life jacket with all these balloons on the water? It's like trying to find a needle in a haystack here because you're, you're looking for more or less a head or an orange life jacket. And here you have a couple hundred thousand uh, orange, orange balloons and it's just hard, hard to decipher which is which. On September 29th, the Coast Guard suspended its search. The fishermen's bodies were subsequently washed ashore. Because of weather, 60% of the balloons launched landed here instead of the planned 10%. Many of them were found on Lake Erie. The local airport had to shut down a runway. Traffic collisions were also reported as drivers swerved to avoid slow-motion blizzards of multicolored balloons. But the balloons that covered the lake and caused concern on Saturday are no longer here today. No one's quite sure where they went, but at least they're no longer posing a threat to fish and wildlife, and they're not littering the lake. While the event was a total loss and a complete disaster, the 1988 copy of the Guinness Book of World Records recognized the event as a world record largest ever mass balloon release.
with 1,429,643 balloons launched. And that is Balloon Fest 86. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And we have a, a real story to tell you. This is not, we're not making this up. It's really happened. Mary Ellen bought two bunches of balloons to give to John and I here. She came down and one of the bunches of balloons she had tied to her watch. And the watch opened up and uh, the balloons took the watch and it's now going out east somewhere. So John and I say, if anybody finds Mary Ellen's watch tied to a bunch of balloons like this, and if you return it to the station, we'll have all kind of rewards for you. And great job, as always, on that, Jesse. And again, to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our free newsletter. And by the way, share our stories with your friends and send your stories to us because we'll make them happen. Go to ouramericannetwork.org, share your stories, and share our stories with everyone you know. Again, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. continue with our American stories with our own Alex Cortez, who brings us the story of an American classic, a man you likely don't know, but you will surely have been glad to have met. Take it away, Alex. Bob Funk grew up in the farming community of Duval, Washington. The town was only 330 people. In my, uh, my grade school class, five of us were cousins out of the eight of us. I was born in 1940, and, and my mother had a nurse breakdown when I was two, so my sister basically uh, trained me and kept me until she got well. I was two, she was four, but she got in the first grade when she was five, and so she came and taught me everything that she had learned in school that day. So by the time I got to be five years old, they tried to skip me two grades. So she basically took care of me until mom got well. What was the cause of this nervous breakdown? I found that out after she passed away. I looked at her checkbook on the form, and my dad was, uh, we were going broke on the ranching. It was a financial pressure. She was at a prayer meeting at the church, and she just passed out. And my grandmother put her in a saint asylum and so Dad went to visit her one Sunday afternoon. She said, I'm not crazy like these folks are in here. You know, get me out of here. So Dad got her out, and the doctor said, you know, just just lay quiet. Don't, don't do anything. Just, just lay quiet for a while, and you'll, you'll snap out of it. So, but it was depression, financial depression. And I was about seven or eight when she got well. And the doctor told her, you go get a job. Get your mind off of the finances. So she went to work in a grocery store for free of charge for our groceries. And so 
I had four shirts all the way through high school and three pair of Levi's. And so that's all we had. So Bob was sure gonna work laboring on his cousin Adolph's farm. I started working for, for wages when I was 14. We worked from six in the morning till 10 at night, seven days a week. Adolph worked from, from six in the morning till, and he milked till midnight every night. That's all he had was his cows that he enjoyed, his life. That's all, that was his total life. So consequently, I'd stay up there and, and try and talk to him, help him till about 10 o'clock every night. Adolph had not had a day off in 17 years until I became 17 years old. And uh, he had confidence that I could milk his cows for him. So he took four days off and went and saw some cousins in Nebraska. But uh, he, was, he, he was a worker. I mean, he could outwork me every day. We'd go shovel uh, gravel. I couldn't keep up with him. He could outwork me. That irritated me a little bit because I was a young rascal. <laughs> 17, 18 years old, I should have been able to outwork him. But uh, he could outwork me. And so work was never difficult. It was just, I thought it was a lot of fun. It was a challenge. It was a challenge to see if I could do it better than anyone else. Being from a um, German background, and my cousin German too, is, it was always to make sure you did it better than anybody else. The drive factor I learned when I was very young. And because my dad worked from 8 in the morning to 4.30, milk cows at 6 in the morning, came home, milked four cows at night. Mom worked at the grocery store till 6.30, 7 o'clock every night. So our whole family was accustomed to a good work ethic and a hard work ethic. But it never, it never occurred to me that it was really a bother. It was always a privilege to work, even if it's late at night. Uh, I didn't know Billy Graham from Adam. And the pastor we had at that time, and he encouraged all of us to go to the Billy Graham crusade in Seattle. Billy was supposed to be there for two weeks. He ended up being there eight weeks. As an 11-year-old, I knew that I had plenty of sin in my life. And so, and so at his crusade, you know, he, his style was to invite people to make a commitment spiritually in their lives. And so uh, I thought, if I don't make a commitment, chances are our bus is going to turn over and I'm going to die tonight anyway. <laughs> so, so I had better make the commitment tonight. <laughs> so I made the, made the commitment it changed a lot of lives that uh, eight weeks that he was there. That was his third crusade, by the way. He started in Los Angeles, went to San Francisco, and then came to Seattle. And after I finished with my master's degree, I tried uh, the pulpit, and I was a terrible preacher. <laughs> there was a great awakening at the end of every sermon. So, so, so I decided that was not for me. The other goal was to be in the ranching business, and I thought I could be the best dairyman in the valley, but my cousin wouldn't sell me his farm, his ranch, so he told me to go to town and get me a job. And I was fortunate to get with 
a Christian company that was in the uh, staffing business. When I first got into the business, I was trying to uh, help them spiritually as well. And so consequently, I couldn't interview as many people as, as some of the others. After a year, my boss, who was a fine Christian man, came to me and he said, Bob, I understand you're trying to help them spiritually, but we do have to make a profit in this business. <laughs> I said, oh, Gordy, I do understand. <laughs> so I would bring them in after hours and on Saturdays and, and counsel them uh, uh, separately if, if they were looking for spiritual advice and spiritual help. We do have to make a profit in this business. <laughs> if you're bankrupt, you're not going to be ministering to many people. <laughs> so. And it was luck, or Bob might say providence, that he failed at becoming a farm owner and Christian minister because his own staffing company that he later founded, Express Employment Professionals, turned into a bigger ministry than he could have ever imagined. Well, uh, and I've thought about that many times. Had I stayed in the pulpit, I probably would not have had the opportunity to minister to so many people. And I think we're in the seven million range now that we've helped find jobs and, and to help them spiritually if they're looking for spiritual help. Reagan once said that the best social program in the United States is a job. And that's true because it gives them pride, gives them encouragement, gives them uh, purpose for life, gives them opportunity, gives them a lot of self-esteem when they have a job, uh, no matter what the level of the job happens to be. So I've told our people that we're in the staffing ministry. And we're in the ministry because every person that comes in looking for a job is insecure. They don't know where the next position might be. They need encouragement. They need hope. They need compassion. That's what the ministry is all about. We happen to be able to help them to solve some of those by finding a good job for them. So it's somewhat uh, exhilarating to be able to find those perfect jobs, if you will, and maybe some of them aren't perfect, but to find them a job that they can grow in, that they can find their way in, and find a spot in life that they didn't think they were able to have. And a lot of times it's a job they never thought they'd ever want to do. And then they get out there and they do a good job and, and they end up being CEO of the company. And a lot of it goes back to work ethic, by the way. We had one fellow that went out to California and because he showed up on, actually showed up a half hour early for the job, he was promoted three times in the first year because he just showed up on time, you know. But it's not just those that we find the jobs for, it's the other millions of people that come to see you looking for help. And you, you have to help them too. You may not find the right spot for them right at that time, but, but you gotta give them hope and encouragement there is a right job for the right person. And you're listening to Bob Funk, co-founder of Express Employment Professionals, and my goodness, helping find 7 million people work. That is a ministry. And so many people in this country treat their work as a ministry, how they deal with people, love on people, treat them. It's a beautiful thing. When we come back, more of the remarkable life story of Bob Funk here 
on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and Bob Funk's story. And Bob now brings us back in time to before he founded his company. And he was still at his very first job in the staffing industry, managing their Oklahoma office. When the other company went, went down into, into bankruptcy, you know, they called me. I was one of four vice presidents. They fired all four of us vice presidents on the same day. And I, I went to my people and I said, I'm sorry, you know, they have fired me. I will not be here on Monday morning. And uh, I had six managers in the meeting. I had six officers, one in Tulsa, five here. One of the managers got up after I went to the restroom, came back, and she says, uh, we've decided what we're going to do. I said, well, what are you going to do? Because I'm gone. Uh, I don't know where you're going to be. They said, wherever you go, we go. Because they were loyal to me. And with that comment, I said, I gotta find a way to keep this, keep these people intact. Because they're so loyal to me that they're gonna be without it. I said, first of all, I said, y'all aren't very smart because I don't know where I'm going tomorrow. <laughs> so, so, and I said, secondly, I'm gonna try one more bank to see if he could get capital to start his own staffing business. And that was a little bank in Piedmont that in the next two weeks helped me out. But they were going to stick with me no matter where I went. I've seen many companies succeed that didn't have the best ideas, but they had good people and loyal people through thick and thin. And you're as only good as your people. No, no better, no worse. I use the example of IBM. IBM, over the years, has not had the best hardware. They've not had the best software. But they're still in business. You know, they got all these other fancy other companies that, that have risen up around them. But they're still in business. And they're still doing well. Because they got better people. I placed a lot of people with them, so I know what the quality of the people that they are. They've got great people. And Bob had great people at the start of his business, Express Employment Professionals, but he wasn't so sure that he himself was great. Well, I was not a good financial guy, and I knew nothing about banking because with the company I'd been with, all the banking was done at headquarters, and so I knew nothing about it, uh, which was unfortunate. So I got this loan for 150000 bucks, and, and the banker told me at the time, he said, if you get growing real fast, I'll go to a bigger bank downtown Oklahoma City. Well, the bigger banks in Oklahoma City were all going bankrupt because of the oil business. And so we start growing real fast. So in June, this, is, this started about January, this is June, he calls me. And he said, uh, you're overdrawn, $23,000. I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, well, I want you to come out here to the bank. And so I go out to the bank and he said, I need a check for $23,000. And 
And I said, well, if I had $23,000, I wouldn't be overdrawn. <laughs> so he says, so he says, well, go home and give me a, a, a financial statement tomorrow morning. This is on Friday afternoon. And so we went home and did a financial statement right to the penny. And we had 200 and I think it was $248,000 in accounts receivable. But we didn't have cash, of course. And so we go back the next morning and he said, I think you needed audited financial statement. I said, what's that? And he said, well, well that's, you, need, you need an auditing company to come in and audit your books to make sure they're correct. And I said, well, how much will that cost? He said, oh, six to $8,000. I said, now, wait a minute. I'm overdrawn $23,000. You want me to spend six to $8,000 on top of that? That doesn't make any sense. And second of all, I don't have the 23,000 bucks, nor do I have the six to 8,000 bucks. So I said, what are we gonna do? And so, so I looked at my wife and, and she said, we'll go out Monday morning and collect some accounts receivable from some of our customers and we'll tell them. We're just a small business and the bank is pressuring us. And uh, we did, we went out and collected 109,000 on Monday morning. I was having my shoe shine the other day and uh, this gentleman introduced himself again, and he said, uh, you don't remember me, but I pl you placed me 22 years ago in my first job out of college, and now I'm a state farm agent. And he said, I stayed on that job for five years. And then I was at a uh, commencement service a few months ago, and this gentleman tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, you found me a job in uh, 19, 79 and he, he said now I'm retired but he said you found me my job of course I, I can't remember many of those people that I placed but the point is that that you're in ministry of helping people uh, now fortunately in our business as uh, Zig Ziglar once said <laughs> the more people you help the more money comes running at your door in our case that's the point. We try and help as many people as possible because financially it also helps to grow a company. So we're able, we're able to grow the company if you have more capital. And that's why we've got 833 locations because we've had enough capital to expand and to grow over the last 37 years with Express. And that's in a very competitive landscape. There are a ton of staffing companies out there. Uh, how many how many competitors do you think we have? I just gave him my speech last week. Ten thousand eight hundred and thirty-three in America. But what I think has made us different is a couple of things. Number one, I think we have been a little more professional, uh, even though it's light industrial that we're placing out there. I believe. <laughs> I believe in wearing suits, I believe in wearing ties, I believe in wearing skirts, I believe in wearing pantyhose. The, the difference between us in the community, and when they see how our people dress, they'll say, oh, you must work for Express. I think professionalism says something to the average company that we want to do the most professional job we possibly can to find them a good job. You know, the first five seconds of your impression is your lasting impression. So when a competitor comes in and calls on a company, 
and it's it's this professional person, and then these other three or four that are not very professional. You'll you'll get the often get the nod over here, even though your price might be a little higher. You'll still get the nod because they think you're going to do a professional job for them. And you have to knock doors in our business. Uh, we ask our sales reps to knock a hundred doors a week, and if they don't knock a hundred doors a week, they're not going to be very successful. A hundred doors a week, and that's just the work ethic and the professional ethic that was instilled in Bob's company. We're hearing from Bob Funk, and my goodness, what a story this is. I mean, from where he started and how he started, the mom with the nervous breakdown, the financial pressures she was responding to, financial depression, as Bob called it. He had four shirts, three Levi's to his name, but work was never a difficulty. Indeed, it was a privilege, Bob said. And it was that Billy Graham crusade at the age of 11 that changed everything and probably turned Bob into the business professional he was. If you care a little more because you have that heart for other people and not just for yourself, it's a competitive advantage. By the way, it was good luck that he didn't turn out to be a good preacher. Or maybe it was divine providence if you ask Bob, and certainly a rancher. And that he became what he became, well... There are no accidents, at least some of us think so. And the staffing business is his ministry, helping 7 million people find work. That's a remarkable legacy. And when we come back, we're going to continue this great story. It's Bob Funk's story. It's an American dreamer's story, if ever we've had one. More of his story here on Our American Story. Continue with our American stories in the final portion of Bob Funk's remarkable life story. His company, Express Employment Professionals, has helped nearly 7 million people find work. And we return to Bob on one of the keys to his success. It never hurt anybody in my mind. To work hard, long hours is a privilege, even in this business. I have told many of them, uh, many of the employees, I may not be as smart as you are, but I guarantee I can outwork you. And, <laughs> and sometimes the extra work that you put into it gains a lot of extra experience and extra revenue streams. So if, if you're there at 7 in the morning, when the rest of them are there at 8 or 8.30, and you're there at 6.37 at night when the rest of them go home at 5 o'clock, you're going to gain a lot of business. You're going to get a lot of business. And you're going to beat your competition. And of course, playing that much athletics, being number one is the only place to be. No one remembers who was number two. And so today we're number one basically in light industrial office services business nationwide. And I think we're number six in overall business uh, professionals over in the, in the U.S. at this time. But it was fun to get to number one. 
You might not be surprised by now that Bob has set his eyes on getting to number one and has achieved number one in a few other areas of life too. He's the largest purebred Angus breeder in the US and potentially the world. His Express Clydesdales have been national champions and he's sponsored champion rodeo competitors. When I moved down here, of course I wanted to get started in the cattle business. So I bought 20 acres out of Piedmont. Of course, that fulfilled my second dream, was to get back in the ranching business. And, and then when we started uh, being successful with Express, I was able to, to purchase the 1,000 acres in Yukon. And so I didn't have enough cows, and I bought more cows, and I didn't have enough land. And it's been going that way ever since. <laughs> and Bob felt like it was finally OK for him to wear a cowboy hat. When I got into the cattle business uh, in a larger way, I figured I felt I couldn't wear the, the hat prior to that because I'd be a rhinestone cowboy. And I wouldn't be honest, if you will, in my presentation. But once we got into the cattle business, I wore a, uh, a hat, a white or a black hat ever since, including when I'm in New York or Washington, D.C. I really don't care because it is the symbol of integrity. It's a symbol of hard work. It's, it's a symbol of giving because you're representing all the cowboys all over America. And I want to represent them properly. I do want to surprise the politicians and the, and the New Yorkers. <laughs> now, I will tell you, the women love the hat. <laughs> they really do. You get more compliments from the women about the hats. And, uh, and so I love wearing the hat no matter where I'm at. Sometimes uh, they don't think you ought to wear it while you're at dinner, but, but I wouldn't mind wearing mine at dinner either because you're, you're making a statement about your value system and about the cowboy's value system, about the West. And the West was one with the cowboy hat and the guns, of course. So it, it, it stands for something that other hats don't. And so it's, it's a symbol of the West, if you will, uh, and, and of the values of the West. The Code of the West, which fellow rancher Bill Koch defines as two fundamental values, stand your ground and loyalty. I think loyalty is extremely important. That's one I didn't mention earlier. And, and this is what you find in Oklahoma people as well. You find a, a deep sense of loyalty to the employer. That type of loyalty you would not get up north. Because I, I worked there, so I know how deep the loyalty is up there. And I had a much better life down here than there. Great Oklahoma with great people. With, with loving, caring people. I would tell my sister, you know, about these great friends that we had that were long-lasting friends. They weren't surface friends. Matter of fact, first year I moved down here, I, I figured in, in college I had about 600 different friends, uh, people that I knew were friends. Only one of them called me the year I, first year I moved down here. But we went back home that Christmas. 
and two of our friends from here called me on Christmas Day and said, Bob, how are you? How are you doing? Merry Christmas. Giving of one's time and love that enriches lives. And giving of one's money is pretty important to Bob, too. He's given away millions, especially to ministries that help develop life skills and values in young Americans, such as the Future Farmers of America and the Oklahoma Youth Expo. Well, my personal belief is that it's much, much more fun to give money than it is to take money. And if you're going to be in our business, you've got to be a giver. And I love to give back to the arenas that have been so uh, giving to me. The cattle business with young kids, the personnel business, helping people. Uh, the rewards of giving are much more meaningful than making money. Money has never been my motivator. And, and I do interview, when I do interview people, I ask them what their motivator is. Is it work environment? Is it is prestige, of course, ego? Or is it money? And usually people who are motivated by money will rip your organization apart because of jealousy, trying to climb the ladder to get over somebody and not caring about the other person. But life is about other people, not about ourselves. And that's probably an old biblical principle. And I was taught when I was young that it's much more pleasant to give than it is to take. And uh, takers usually are very unhappy people. I've interviewed many millionaires. There are very few of them that are very happy because they were self-centered, looking out for themselves and not looking out for others. And so, so giving not only money, but time and effort and communication is extremely important if you're gonna be satisfied and happy with your life. It's just, it's just, it's just, just a part of life that is so much fun to watch others with giving. Uh, it's fun to, to help people find a better job so they make more money, but, but to give, give to them, watch them grow is, is so much fun. To watch franchisees grow. And some of them make a lot of money, but most of the franchisees we brought into our system, we look at their heart first, then their drive, then their values, then their drive, and then the end result becomes money. They do better than the rest. And uh, only in America can you, can you do what we've done. Uh, I'll tell you another little story about America. I was uh, with a prince in Austria at a dinner one night, and there were some people at our table, and we told them the story about starting out with $5,000 and 150000 borrowed money. He said, you can't do that in Austria. If you don't belong to the six families here in Austria, you'll never be successful. And that's what people don't understand, that we have so many opportunities. Sometimes we have so many opportunities, people don't know which direction to go. When we had the offices in Russia, uh, Igor came uh, for training and we took him to a grocery store. This is right after the wall fell. 
and he came back and he said, too, too, many, too many decisions, too many decisions. He said, I, I even have to make decisions on which socks I'm going to wear in the morning. But he said, too many decisions. We don't, in, in a socialist country, you only have one color of suit, you only have one color of pants. You only have one or two decisions to make every day. Too many decisions, he said. I thought that was really interesting. And we do. We get a chance to make many decisions. The story goes that you have seven opportunities in your lifetime, and sometimes you take them, sometimes you don't. But the average is seven opportunities in your lifetime. So I've been fortunate to walk through the doors and maybe five of them. Still got a few left. <laughs> 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 How old are you now, Bob? Uh, turning on to 80 in May. <laughs> I started an oil company three weeks ago. <laughs> and what a life story. By the way, one last story. In Bob's acceptance speech into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, he made sure to specifically thank Paul Springfield, the banker who loaned him $150,000 when he only had 5,000 to his name. It was also a time of 14% unemployment and 21% interest rates, but the banker made what's now a rare thing called a character loan, where you make it based on the character of the person in front of you. Bob joked, I'm not sure which type of character he thought I was. Bob Funk's life story, his business, Express Employment Professionals, has helped over 7 million people find work. His story, his company's story, his family's story, here on Our American Stories.